0: Well, our scripture this morning is John 4. We're in the midst of a sermon series uh, called uh, Church in the Life of the Spirit. Last week, last week I preached on uh, Creator Spirit. And we looked at a number of texts that that get at the idea of the Holy Spirit as the creator, the Lord and the giver of life. And we looked at the role that the Holy Spirit plays in nature. And this is a natural follow-up text, but I, th- this morning we're looking at the question of the nature of spiritual worship. And uh, our story here is, is not quite all of the story of the Samaritan woman, but it begins in chapter 4, verse 1. So now when Jesus learned that the disciples had heard, um, now that when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, and near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, "'Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, "'and the well is deep. "'Where do you get this, that living water? "'Are you greater than our father Jacob?' "'He gave us the well and drank from it himself, "'as did his sons and his livestock.' "'And Jesus said to her, "'Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. "'The water that I give, will come, give him will become in him "'a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and I won't have to come back here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is called, who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The word of the Lord. The central theme of this story has to do with the nature of true worship. And in particular, what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? And the context of this story, as we just saw, is a very personal engagement of Jesus with a Samaritan woman. It's not a theological discourse. And bound very closely to this theme of true worship is the, what is the nature of spiritual worship? What does it mean to worship in spirit? And spirit here should not be lowercase but it should be capitalized because it doesn't refer to a mode or a method or a style of worship it's not an adjective relating to kind of you know um, how we do things It, it actually refers to the person of the holy spirit to worship god in spirit and truth is to worship in the spirit and so what is spiritual worship in other words spirit Holy Spirit-inspired worship, Holy Spirit-guided worship. So that is our theme this morning. Um, And the goal simply is this. It is to grow and to deepen in our knowledge and love of the Holy Spirit and understand more how the Spirit um, leads us into true worship. So there's three things that I want to reflect on in this this really rich um, passage of Scripture about spiritual worship. The first is the way in which spiritual worship overcomes the barriers that divide people. Spiritual worship overcomes the barriers that divide people. The second is the way in which spiritual worship quenches the thirst of the human heart. And third, spiritual worship connects us to the person of Jesus. So spiritual worship overcomes the divides that are the barriers that divide us. Uh, This story starts with a divine detour. John tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. But there's more to this statement than simply an observation about directions. There is a sense of divine destiny here. Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria. He could have gone around it. In fact, many Jews preferred to go around Samaria, even though it was smack in the middle between Galilee and Jerusalem. It's not as if the roads were closed. There's a sense here he had to pass through it in order to meet this woman. The Spirit led him there. John the Baptist in the first chapter of the Gospel of John tells us, he says, this is the one on whom the Spirit of God has descended and remained upon him. Where Jesus goes, the Spirit goes. Where the Spirit goes, Jesus goes. And the Spirit leads Jesus through Samaria into the town of Sychar, underneath the mountain, Mount Gerizim, to a well, Jacob's well, where he meets this woman in the middle of the afternoon. And I think it's important to see all the various border crossings that Jesus has to make in order to have this conversation because it is a very unusual conversation. And very unusual that Jesus would be present here with this woman asking her for a drink. And you see this in her response when he asked for a drink. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink for me, a Samaritan woman? What are you doing here, in other words? Why are you talking to me? Don't you know that you're on the wrong side of the tracks? What's going on in this story? So even John makes mentions of this parenthetically about the animosity uh, between Jews and Samaritans, that Jews didn't have anything to do with Samaritans. They were really mortal enemies. Samaritans were a mixed race of people. They were half Jewish and half Gentile. Over 500 years ago, um, tribes in the north intermixed in marriage with pagan Assyrian Babylonian uh, peoples. And they remained and kept a lot of Judaism and and sort of practices of the Torah, but they mixed it in with some pagan worship, and they were also racially mixed people. And there was mutual animosity on both sides. Jewish people saw them as impure, as idolaters, and they avoided them. And oftentimes there was violent confrontations between Jews and Samaritans. So what is Jesus doing here? I think it's really important just to put it in our own context, the significance of his, his uh, presence at this well. It would have been like a white man in the segregated South and Jim Crow area going and drinking out of a black water fountain. And not only is this a Samaritan that Jesus is talking to, this is a woman. There is a gender aspect to this. In ancient cultures, men generally do not engage women in public when they are alone. It's forbidden. Moreover, this woman has another strike against her. She's at the well by herself for a reason. Usually women would go in groups in the morning and in the evening, but she's in the middle of the afternoon. She's by herself, and as we come to learn in her story, she has been married five times. She's probably got a reputation in town. A lot of the women probably avoid her, and so she's at this well by herself. So here Jesus is. He violates all kinds of boundaries all kinds of barriers in this exchange. Racial, political, gender, religious, and moral. Convention and polite society would say, this, Jesus Jesus shouldn't be within 50 miles of this woman. But here he is, led by the Spirit. And the first thing that he offers her is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? He says to her, this is verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked, and he would have given you the living water. The living water, of course, as we talked about last week, is really another name for the Holy Spirit. It's the presence of God. Jesus says in John 7, later in a, few, a couple more chapters, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. And then John says, now, he said this about the Spirit. See, the streams of living water is the Holy Spirit, it's the very presence of God, and Jesus says, I I offer you living water, I offer you the very presence of God. And what we see here in this little scene in chapter four is a bit of a preview of what will happen at Pentecost on a global scale. The Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh, Samaritan flesh, which was a despised flesh by the average Jew. And when you look at the book of Acts and the way in which the gospel goes out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, again and again, there are miraculous outpourings of the Holy Spirit upon the Samaritan people because the average Jew simply could not believe that salvation was offered to them. And so the Spirit is poured out on them and they speak in tongues and there are great signs and miracles in order to convince the Jews, that yes, these people too are included. And what you see is this going throughout the whole book of Acts, is that the Spirit is propelling and and launching the church outside of its comfortable environment in Jerusalem to the outer ends of the world, which is really a fulfillment of what Jesus said, right? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, he says this to his disciples in Acts 1, When the Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Bringing all the nations to the obedience and the worship of God is a sign of true spiritual worship. The Holy Spirit inspired worship overcomes the boundaries. It crosses borders. It brings people together that don't belong together, humanly speaking. They should have nothing to do with one another. But I think what's really important is the Spirit doesn't do this simply, uh, you know, sort of like by a kind of a magical changing of our minds or our moods. We need to see how the Spirit does this by leading us to a new center for worship. This woman brings up in her conversation around the living water, she goes back to the question of the racial and the religious distinctions between herself and Jesus as a Jew. And again, part of the background here that's helpful for understanding this story, Is that one of the ways that um, things that distinguished Samaritans and Jews was the Samaritan rejection of Jerusalem and the temple and the priesthood as a center for religious life? The average Jew would make uh, a pilgrimage or two a year that was in Israel to the temple to make sacrifices and worship. It was the religious heart and center of faith. But the Samaritans, um, about five, you know, had built. They had their own temple they built on Mount Gerizim. And, and, and it's so important to understand that this mountain is basically in the background of Jacob's well. This is the conversation happening in the background. Um, it was a temple that was destroyed 150 years prior, again, because of wars between Jews and Gentiles, and yet there was a way in which they were still attached to this mountain and this place. The reality of the permanent division between um, Jew and Gentile in many ways hinged on these different locations. And what the Spirit does in overcoming our our divisions is he gives us a new worship center. Jesus says just in two chapters prior to this, I am the new temple. Destroy this temple and in three days it will be raised again. Jesus is a new temple from which the presence of God flows. That's how he's able to go into Samaria and offer to this woman the living water because he is the very temple in the presence of God. No longer is God bound to a location. No longer is God bound to an ethnicity. No longer is God bound to a building. It is bound only to a person, the person of Jesus Christ, and he gives living water to all who ask for him. He gives living water to all who ask of it. So spiritual worship overcomes the barriers The barriers that divide us, but spiritual worship also quenches the thirst of the human heart. The condition of this woman receiving living water is bound up with her understanding who Jesus is, um, who it is who's offering the living water. And Jesus says so much. He says, if you knew who I am, if you really knew who I am. I would, have, I, would, I would give you, <clears throat> if you knew who I am and what I have to offer you, I would have give you living water. And when the, Jesus offers the woman living water to drink, she doesn't quite understand what he's, he's talking about, what he means exactly. And Jesus says, this is verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Now, of course, if somebody offers you like living water that wells up to eternal life, that you'll never be thirsty, like you would be a fool not to take it, right? And of course, a woman's like, yes, I want this water. Give it to me. But she doesn't understand still who Jesus is. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and I won't have to come here to draw water. I think it's interesting to look at her response because it shows that she doesn't really understand true spirituality. She doesn't understand the spirit. She's thinking in very earthly and material categories. She's she's thinking quite literally about what Jesus is saying here. There's a way in which she kind of takes this living water as her being able to bypass having to continue drinking and coming back to this well in order to draw water, right? There's a kind of magical spirituality going on here. Living water, I mean, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. Give me that water." But what she doesn't understand is that Jesus is driving at something much deeper. He's driving at a deeper thirst, a more unquenchable thirst that he is addressing, a spiritual thirst of the human heart, the human thirst for eternal life. Remember, this story is about what it means to become a true worshiper. And the Samaritan woman is very spiritual, right? She's very spiritual. She, she, in a way, like represents spiritual, not religious in our culture. She's very spiritual. But her spirituality is magical. And I, and I use this word magical very intentionally because I think in ancient cultures and contemporary cultures, much spirituality is magical spirituality. And magical spirituality is a kind of it's to view religious objects like you know, communion or different rituals or religious doctrines or, or devotional ways of life as, as a way to serve and to secure earthly life and goods here and now. That's what magical spirituality and religion does. It is to use religious life in its various forms as a way to kind of, like you see something as a potion or as a to, to secure what you want here and now. This woman believes that this living water will make it so she doesn't have to come to this well to draw water every day, which you can imagine is a pretty big deal. Not just a hassle to come draw water, but as an outcast, she comes by herself in the middle of the day. She's thinking, man, it would be nice not to have to come to this well, relive my shame, or just be reminded of it, that I'm here by myself. You can imagine that's a very appealing thing, but again, it is to miss the point of what Jesus is driving at. I think it's true for us that we, we're no better, we're no more enlightened than this woman is because it's a very subtle temptation for all of us to view various forms in, of our Christian life, of our spirituality in magical terms, as being able to secure for us our best life now, to secure for us kind of our vision of the American dream. We use God for our own purposes. God makes us happy. God makes us moral. God makes us prosperous. But again, this is to make God serve us. This is to make God serve the earthly and the temporal, which misses the deeper reality, which is this, is that we thirst and we hunger for what is eternal. We thirst and hunger for what is God. We were created by God and we are created for God, and we will never quench that deep down thirst of our hearts unless we're able to receive the living water that Jesus gives us. True spirituality gets at the deep, deep thirst, the hunger. I mean, you could let a Mississippi River, Mississippi River's worth of blessing and pleasure, wealth and success and romance flow into your life, and it will still not quench your thirst. And what Jesus does here, which is really interesting, and he really brings it home, he makes it very specific. He, he makes a shift. He's trying to break through to this woman's heart. She doesn't quite understand, and you can imagine, he's like, no, 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 you've misunderstood. This living water is not like living, like what you think, where you don't have to go back and drink. This, it's, it's the Holy Spirit, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit and, and this is spiritual life, right? Jesus could have done that, he doesn't do that. What does he do? He does something that's pretty controversial. He, he raises a question about her sex life. I mean, he asked her about her sex life. She said, go call your husband, go call your husband. I mean, this sounds mean, this is mean. This is mean, Jesus, right? Go call your husband. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you are now with is not your husband. Now, what is Jesus doing? He's not trying to shame this woman. He's not trying to just shame this woman, but what he's trying to do here is he has identified, he has put his finger on an area of this woman's life in which she is trying to quench her deep spiritual thirst with earthly means. Jesus brings up her troubled past, not to shame her, but to help her understand her spiritual thirst. She's been trying to satisfy this deep longing for eternity in her own heart through love and romance, and she's made a mess of her life. Five marriages in the ancient world. I mean, she's an outcast. She's seeking eternity and happiness through romantic love, and it won't work. And in one way or another, we all do this. Whether we want, we do it with romance, and obviously many of us do that with romance and love and marriage and think that somehow this is going to, satisfy that, that hunger, that longing, or that thirst. We do it with our children. We live through our children or through our grandchildren. We do it through trying to perfect our bodies. We devote ourselves to being fit and eating well and working out, to looking beautiful. We do it through trying to craft the, the perfect lifestyle, make a certain amount of money, have the, all the things we love to do. We do it through having the right friends or community or family. We do it through career and success. We devote our lives to our career. We give everything we work, you know, all week long. We try to climb the ladder. We try to achieve a certain level of recognition and wealth. And all along, you could, it's like the Mississippi River. You could just let this flow of all these earthly things keep going, and you're still not going to be satisfied. You're still going to be parched because the temporal cannot water the eternal. See, this is really the essence of idolatry, right? Idolatry is looking for eternal happiness, looking for the the quenching thirst of eternity by earthly, worldly means whether that be romance and love or fame or career or children, whatever it is. But true worship is thirst quenching. It is the thirst quenching because we are given living water, eternity itself, which is the person of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, as we've discussed and reflected on, is a source of life, not just spiritual life, but all life, biological life. And to have the Spirit is to have a well in you. It's to have the well like Jacob's well, but the Holy Spirit comes out, rivers of life coming out of our hearts that will never run dry. And only this, friends, can parch our souls. Only this can fill our souls. Spiritual worship quenches the deepest desires of the human heart with the very gift and presence of God. Now, the woman... The problem, the deeper problem of this woman isn't simply that she doesn't see um, that she's trying to satisfy these thirst issues with romance and love, but she has a problem with the object of her worship. So, after Jesus accurately describes a woman's marital history, she begins to recognize this is no ordinary man. She says, You know, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, which is kind of funny. I mean, His true identity is slowly sort of being unfolded to the woman, but then she quickly pivots, right? She pivots away from a conversation about her marital past to um, a theological conversation about doctrine and theology. Let's keep this theological and I I just want to parenthetically say that like we do this all the time. I mean, we we prefer to talk at the level of doctrine and theology and ideas. You're like, let's leave the personal stuff behind It's safer to talk about ideas and theology rather than what is personal. She would, so she says to Jesus, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is is the place where people ought to worship. Again, this is going back to a major, sort of a talking point and difference between Jews and, and Samaritans. Like you gotta go to Jerusalem to worship. And of course, Jesus here is never, he's never thrown off guard. He can take any conversation and, and direct it back to the heart of the matter. And he says to the woman, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, the one behind us, Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem, will you worship <coughs> Will you worship the Father. You will worship, I'm sorry, let me read that again. Woman, believe me, this, uh, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Now what Jesus says here about you worship what you do not know has a couple meanings, has a couple layers of meaning. The first and primary layer of meaning is, has to do with a statement about Samaritan religion, which is that it is flawed and it is half pagan. It is a mixture of paganism and, and, and Torah. But the second point he makes is more personal, and it has to do with her marital history and the ways in which she has made love and marriage and romance into an idol. And remember, the whole point of this passage is Jesus moving this woman to a true worshiper. And so he engages her on two levels. He engages her on the theological level of her misunderstanding of who God is, but he also engages her on the personal level. But I want to step back, though. I think there's a really important principle in this text, a very key teaching, which is that there's more to true worship than sincerity of belief. There's more to true worship than sincerity of belief and authenticity. And you know, for our culture, sincerity and authenticity is the, the, really the, the single mark of true worship. Because who am I to say who you worship? You know what you worship. But it's important that you're sincere about what you worship. But but this is again not biblical religion. You must have the right object of worship, right? Truth matters. Theological truth must reframe the airs of personally sincere worship. And so that's what Jesus does here. He engages her around what is the object of her worship. And he begins to turn her to the right direction, which is really himself. And so Jesus says with the woman, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Many have interpreted Jesus' statement here about worship and spirit and truth to be um, a statement about how true worship is more a matter of the heart and it is an interior and it no longer depends on outward forms and rituals and temples. You don't need a temple. You don't need Jerusalem or Mark Gerizim. Spiritual worship means you no longer have to rely on set forms. But this is precisely the opposite of what Jesus means here. i got to say that very clearly because this text is abused in many ways. This is actually the, the precise opposite of what Jesus is saying here. Remember, the Bible never pits the spirit over against material reality. In the Gospel of John, it's spirit and flesh, and flesh is not stuff, It's not materiality, it's not creation. Flesh is fallen humanity. Flesh is worldliness. Spirit and flesh. The difference between the earthly and the spiritual is the difference between that that created reality that is rightly oriented towards God and created reality that is oriented towards idols and sin. And so when Jesus draws the distinction between spirit and flesh, or he talks about worshiping in spirit, he is not saying that forms don't matter. In fact, that comes out very clearly in what he says to this woman. He says, salvation is from the Jews, right? Salvation is from the Jews. He's saying in very definitive terms, like, woman. I mean, he's engaging her lovingly. He says, listen, you're wrong. Your people are wrong. Salvation is from the Jews. This was God's plan. You can't break salvation away from this reality of the people of Israel. There's no dispensing of Israel. And so in a sense, there's a very clear rebuke here to the woman's ideas. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus doesn't make, say, okay, you have to make your peace with Jerusalem. You need to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and make some sacrifices and repent and submit yourself to the priesthood. That's not what he says. What he does is he offers himself as a new temple. And in doing this, what he does is he throws the door open for Jews and Gentiles and all the nations to come under one roof. He is the new temple. He is the new center for worship. God has become flesh. The temple of the Spirit, the incarnation means there is a new location for worship. And that location is Jesus of Nazareth. That's the new location for worship. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So when he speaks of spirit and truth, he speaks about the Holy Spirit in himself. The Spirit will always direct us and connect us to the flesh and blood of Jesus. The Spirit will always, always, always be directing you more clearly to the person of Jesus himself, not away from him. And so what you see in the dynamic of true worship that comes out of this text is, Jesus, the truth, gives us the gift of living water, that is the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, the living water, will always lead us back to the person of Jesus who is the truth. There is a kind of reciprocity in the relationship. There is a holy triangulation that all of us get caught in between the spirit and the truth, between Jesus and the Holy Spirit that draws us upward in worship to the Father. This is Trinitarian worship. I I love what the the Puritan Richard Sibb says. It's in in the front of your bulletin. He says, the more Christ is discovered, the more the spirit is given, the more the riches of Christ are unfolded in the church, the more the spirit goes along with them, the more the free grace and love of God in Christ is made known to the church, the more spirit there is, and again, back and again, the more spirit, spirit, the more knowledge of Christ, for there is a reciprocal going of these two, the knowledge of Christ and the spirit. We don't have the conclusion of this story, but I want to conclude with what that scene is, which is a beautiful picture of spiritual worship. Because what happens is the disciples come back. They see Jesus, and they're confused. And the woman, she drops her pails. She drops her pails, and she goes back to the village. And she begins to tell them about the Messiah, the one who says, I am the Messiah. And she says, he, he, he told me everything I ever did. I love that. The very thing that for us would have been, been like, oh, that was, that was bad manners, Jesus. You shouldn't have gone there. For her becomes a very reason that she evangelizes. And then what happens is all these Samaritans come. And they want to hear. And Jesus, and they plead with Jesus, stay with us for two more days. Which imagine if you're a disciple, and all of a sudden Jesus stays two more days and more Samaritans put their faith in Jesus. And I think what you have here is this beautiful picture of Jesus going to this uncharted territory, this off-limits place, and staying there. And, and he's bringing reconciliation. He's overcoming boundaries. And here's this woman who is coming alive, and she's bringing others with him. Friends, this is, this is spiritual worship. It is the Spirit leading us more into Jesus, and Jesus giving us more of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this beautiful story that's so rich with truth. We pray that we would get caught between Jesus and the Spirit, that the Spirit would lead us more to him, connect us more to him, and that he would give more and more of the Spirit to us to to enliven our souls, to enlighten our minds, to heal our hearts, to feed us, to quench our thirst and so we pray that that would be true and we give you thanks and praise in the name of Christ. Amen. Well we have an opportunity to come to the Lord's table for those of us who are here this morning. We have not celebrated the Lord's table uh, since